0: This is R.J. Rush Easy Chair Number 44, May the 7th, 1983. And Chuck and John Saunders Quaid and I were uh, sitting here telling stories while we were waiting for Chuck Wagoner to get the equipment set up. And I'll pass one of the stories on to you. We were discussing uh, blunders, verbal blunders, and... Uh, The starting point was one I made on one of these tapes which Chuck cut out. But I told them of an incident that happened some years ago and I was a witness to it. It was a sad one, but it was amazing in its uh, nature. It was in a very large Bay Area church. The pastor was a fine and kindly man, but he was walking a tightrope because two powerful families in the church were alternately displeased with him. Well, there was a wedding, and of all things, it was between the son of one family and the daughter of of the other family. And neither family was happy with the wedding, and at that time they were both angry with the pastor. So when the service began, everyone was tense, and he was walking a tightrope. The couple were the only people there who were really happy about the occasion. The pastor did beautifully until the conclusion of the service when he declared, Whom therefore God hath put asunder, let no man put together. There was a gasp a shocked gasp all over. He tried to recuperate. He concluded with a benediction and left in some embarrassment. And <laughs> he never lived that down for a man. However, I'll tell you a story that I did not deal with before, which is the ultimate bonus. And it couldn't have happened to a more deserving person. This was a pastor I really had no use for. (laughs) He was uh, young and very handsome, very much on the go, seeking his own advancement. And by the time he was in his early 30s, he was in a very wealthy congregation, magnificent stone church in the best neighborhood with an exceptionally good salary. He had everything. He had it made. And there was a large wedding taking place and uh, very important families. The church was not only thronged, but people were standing along the wall and in the back. And so before the service began, uh, someone in the family requested that when the processional ended and the organ stopped playing, he asked everyone to be seated. Normally, in many churches, everyone remains standing for the service, which usually takes only about 20 uh, to 30 minutes. So... He agreed he would ask everyone to be seated. Well, the organ began to play the bride and the groom came each from their respective directions. The organ stopped playing and the pastor announced, Will the congregation please be seated while the marriage is consummated? When he said that, he turned red and the congregation (coughs) gasped, and then they began to laugh. They roared with laughter. They became hysterical with laughter. When the laughter died down, it began again in wave after wave after wave. And it was some time before the wedding was able to continue. <laughs> Needless to say, the young man resigned and left. <laughs> I, I think sometime I'll write a book on uh,
1: pastoral, boners. pastoral
0: boners I have known about. <laughs> oh. Well, now to get on with things today. Uh, John Saunders Quaid is with me because we're going to discuss something that Calcedon has planned for this October. A Conference on the Arts. And it's going to be an especially important conference. We're expecting a very large crowd, so that when we send out announcements and you're interested in coming, let us do immediately, because this is going to reach a capacity audience. John, do you want to tell us about it?
1: Well, I think uh, uh, we've been establishing for some months
0: now the basic position
1: of Calcedon on the media and the arts. and and we've, you know, we've been telling people that there's a lot of things that we have to do. And one of the things that we wanted to do was we wanted to bring expression to that. We didn't want to talk about it and write about it. We wanted to show exactly how to go about doing, how to go about bringing reconstruction into the media and the arts. The humanist has been using the media and the arts for uh, many, many decades now as a tool of propaganda uh, for his worldview. And we believe that the Christians have a better solution. The Bible is the final authority in every area of life, which includes art. And that the, that art, um, uh, insofar as a Christian is concerned, is not limited just to doing television programs about evangelism or prophecy or some or some Bible studies and things of that nature, which all have their place. But our primary concern is with attacking humanism in its in its stronghold, with with uh, uh, bringing uh, Christian artists to um, an epistemological self-consciousness, to an awareness of what they know and how that influences art and we're bringing together a number of people from across the country and not only yourself but uh Frankie Schaefer will be there um myself of course and Paul Lyons who is president of the American Business Media Council Paul has been for years trying to get conservative businessmen to wake up to the fact that they're funding their own destruction in television and elsewhere uh Otto Scott uh will be there also uh we will have uh, a number of paintings on exhibit um as well as as quite a complement of literature um, on the arts. Um, and we will have, I think, all together, it's 11, uh, 11 speakers. Uh, Senator Bill Richardson will give the uh, banquet address uh, at the conclusion. We're uh, expecting Dr. Cornelius Van Til to come out and be our special guest. I talked to him on the phone a couple of weeks ago, and I'm going back to see him on May 21st, uh, to uh, finalize those arrangements, and uh, uh, we're expecting the, the, we're limiting the conference to about 350 people, um, and uh, the reason for that is primarily the facilities, but also because of the fact that this is the first time we've ever done anything like this, and we're trying to trying to limit the number of people we have to handle, but we're interested in, in, in doing things, for example we want to show christians how to apply the law to their business how the artist applies the law to his business and how he also uses that same law in his art and how he develops characters and things of that nature on, on biblical models of character uh... we want to show the artist uh, uh... for example there's a major problem in copyright today and people getting paid uh... for their work uh... for books and films and, and tape piracy and things The the Christian position has provided the answer to that problem uh, many, many centuries ago, and we've lost that perspective. We want to deal with uh, the historic greatness of Christian art, uh, as it was in the Reformation, which is your your topic um, in the conference, and to give the Christian something to shoot at. So it's going to be a very, very broad-based perspective, concentrating primarily uh, this time on television and the media arts. Um, and secondarily on the other arts. We're expecting, uh, uh, as I said before, to take about 350 people. It will be a two-day conference, registration on Friday the 14th from 9 until 12.
0: This is October.
1: October. Uh Mm -hmm. And then um, we will have uh, four hours of uh, instruction and lecture on Friday and then uh, another uh, eight hours of instruction on Saturday. Concluding with the banquet that night, and I think uh, Martin Sobretti's, who's doing, um, uh, giving a paper on the theory of Christian music, he is trying now to put together a concert, for uh, a dinner concert, uh, for the guests, uh, about 18 to 20 pieces, uh, to do some original compositions. And uh, we're, we're expecting it to be a, um, a full-fledged affair and very excited about it. Yes,
0: and let me add, Martin Salbretti is doing an important music uh, musical study yes. on a Christian theory of music. Uh, he's not an amateur at it. He has had 26 compositions played by various symphony orchestras. hmm So we're looking forward to that aspect of our conference. hmm well, it sounds wonderful and we'll keep all of our uh, listeners and readers posted on this as time goes on. Is there anything else you want to add? Well, uh,
1: we're uh, interested in in beginning to develop um, some other factors in the arts in, in terms of how do we bring the, the, the Chalcedon view, for example, the biblical uh, reconstruction view uh, to the whole of arts and one of the things that we're Looking at in this area is uh, various media projects which we've talked about before. Yes. And uh, those projects are coming along, um, coming along very slowly but coming along very certainly in terms of development of the concepts we're working with. Uh, We're talking with Chuck uh, Wagner here about uh, doing some more expanding our radio effort Mm -hmm. and uh, various other things. The whole media and arts arm of Calcedon and, and the reconstructionist perspective is really I think it's really beginning to lay a solid foundation for a major explosion here in the next year and a half. Where I, Carolyn and Gwen and all the wives and things around here are um, they're kinda of lonely at times when we take off across the country all of us and but they have so much to do uh here in so far as Calcedon's work and in particular in the arts and, and the media that uh, uh it's really provided a kind of unity this project has it's brought us together to work on a particular
0: project and we've had a um, uh, a great deal of blessing as a result of that mm-hmm. Caroline Kelly and Gwen Saunders in particular have been doing a lot of the work on this uh, October conference yes. mm-hmm. anything further you want to add uh
1: not at the, not at the moment um uh, I can only say that uh, uh, the invitations the um the, that are being mailed out to people um uh, we do expect um uh, the conference to be full as you said at the top of the of the uh, show or at the top of the tape rather. Uh, we 've already got something like eighty some applications and um, uh, people that want to come to the conference and who 've committed to come to the conference and we haven 't even sent out the the uh, flyers and and registration forms yet so and we 're limiting it to about three hundred and fifty so uh, these are some of the media
0: people themselves yes, are they not yes from mm-hmm. uh, hollywood
1: yes we, um, we've sent invitations to uh, two or three producer friends of mine who who want to come who, one of whom is a producer of happy days and and to uh two or three writers um, uh who write for major television productions. And um, um, we have a number of technical people coming, for example, um, a director of photography, Roy H. Wagner will be um, who has an extensive, extensive knowledge of uh of the history of film and how it's and why and how and why it's declined. Um, uh, he's also coming to the conference to deliver a paper and uh, uh, there will be a number of people there who are indirectly related to the media uh, insofar as producing is concerned people who have uh, television stations uh, who are interested in in funding television projects and and media projects were very concerned with seeing that those people discover that mm-hmm. there is a conservative christian basis for the arts and that this and not only is it true but it can also be very
0: very profitable Yes, let me add this. In the arts and media, we are lining up the personnel, the professionals with expertise. Now, all we need is someone to give us the funding, and we are ready to do some remarkable things because there are people there in Hollywood, as John indicated, who are simply waiting for the right vehicle and who are unhappy that they are being given turkeys uh, to produce and to market. Mm-hmm. They want the kind of thing that Calcedon can deliver. Now we need the funding.
1: Just uh, just one thing, Rush. I, was, I, I got a letter from a uh, producer of one of the most successful uh, situation comedies on television here a while back, and uh, he's a Christian, very concerned about uh, the declining uh, morality and philosophical uh, basis of television. But in this letter, he lists uh, a running history of how he tried to mount two successive projects over a period of three years, which had a definite Christian foundation. And uh, one of them was even about a Christian, a Christian man, who was the very image of the Christian man that we talk about all the time, who was the leader of the home and the responsible, etc., cetera, and um, uh, who, even, who even talked about God in the, in the show. And uh, he talked about the incredibly excruciating and frustrating problems he had with 99 different people trying to um, defuse possible um, uprisings in mm-hmm. various quarters of the United States because of its obvious Christian content. And it isn't that that uh, there aren't people there who are not trying, because there are people there who are definitely trying to get this kind of product on, on, on the networks. But the networks are not buying it. Mm-hmm. And they're not buying it for a lot of, lot of reasons, all of which are, are, of course, fundamentally corrupt. But uh, I just wanted to, to, to say that because I wanted to let people know that there, that there are many individuals in the industry right now who are in major positions of power and expertise, but, but only in the production sense and not at the network level. And these people are trying to turn out the kind of product and trying to offer the kinds of pilots to the networks that we're talking about, but they're having absolutely no success whatsoever. Yes.
0: Let me add something there, uh, something I hope one of these days to write a, a little article about. I'm increasingly weary of the efforts by Christians to clean up television because the thing that comes home to me is that what they're trying to do is fundamentally false. It's rotten. What they are saying is, we don't want pornography and we don't want sex and violence on television. We want to clean it up and give it a moral aspect. What for? All they're saying is, we want to make humanism palatable. We want to give a kind of a Christian veneer to... Humanistic programming. Well, I'm glad that TV is as bad as it is today because it's humanism going to seed. Let people see what humanism adds up to. And let them say, we don't want humanism cleaned up, we want it replaced.
1: And I think one of the best biblical admonitions about this whole thing is, one does not put new wine into old wineskins.
0: Very good. Exactly.
1: And, and I believe that, that the only reason why the humanistically controlled networks survive today is because the Christians haven't done anything. I believe it survives only because the conservatives who are always talking about competition in a free marketplace nevertheless arbitrarily exclude media and communication arts from that marketplace. Yes. And And I believe that what's going to have to happen is that the conservatives and the Christians who have the funding um, who have the the financial clout, etc, are going to have to realize that they can 't go to the opposition. the opposition will launder their money mm-hmm. as they always have, and that it 's not to try to reform the networks because that 's just trying to put new wine into in old wine' skins it 's casting pearls before swine and I think what we ought to do is is as we 've said before in the journal and in previous takes, build the network from the ground up, uh, the marketplace is there, the need in the marketplace is there the The audience research demonstrates this is the kind of product the audience wants. And I think that all we have to do is provide the alternative in the marketplace and you you can just cut the legs off of the major networks right at the knees. And I think that the art will be extremely successful philosophically, theologically, religiously. And I think it will also be extremely successful financially.
0: Yes. You know, one of the great evils of our time is not on the side of the humanists. It's on the side of the Christian community. Here we are clearly in the majority in this country because according to all the polls, those who profess to believe the Bible from cover to cover number 55 to 60 million. On top of that, one recent poll indicated that over 90% of the people in this country declare that they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, what are these people doing? They could be turning this country around if they were ready to put their money where their mouth is. Do you know that just since the first of the year, and I've been on the road so much, um, I was gone three days this past week, I will be gone four days this coming week, and uh, every day the next week, and so on for a while just the people who come up to me wherever I've been and said uh, how much they think of our work and they can hardly wait for the Chalcedon report to come and whatever they they're doing they drop it to read it immediately if the people who said that to me and I know because I look at all the material the deposits everything were giving to Cal If they had given ten or twenty dollars since the first of the year or last year, we'd be in a much stronger position financially and able to do some of the things we cannot do. No question, no question The, the Christian that. does not put his money where his mouth is. He'll complain about politics, but he'll never give to a political campaign.
1: Well I think it's always easier to complain than it is to put forth a positive affirmation of what you believe in. Negative criticism is very, very easy. We're all very good at it, throwing rocks at other people's houses. But it's one thing, it's quite another matter to sit down and build your own house.
0: Yes, exactly. We get all kinds of uh, letters from groups that want us to promote this or that cause, which is anti-something. Our primary concern is with building because I have seen millions spent on negation without accomplishing anything. We're only beginning to turn things around as some people have gone out there and worked hard to establish this or that agency, to go out and do grassroots political work, to start Christian schools, to start homes for delinquents, and so on. A lot of people just sit back and insist that their calling is to criticize, and that's the essence of their uh, religious duty. Well, now to go on to something else. Uh, I'm very grateful to John Lofton for having sent me an article in defense of the welfare state by George Will from the May 9, 1983 New Republic. It is a most remarkable essay because I believe George Will has some kind of church affiliation. Certainly there is no evidence of faith in this article because the essence of his uh, position well, let me quote a few passages But a free market economic system is a system, it is a public product a creation of government. Any important structure of freedom is a structure, a complicated institutional and cultural context that government must nurture and sustain. Obviously, free speech is not free in the sense that it is free of prerequisites. It is not free of a complicated institutional frame. Free speech, as much as a highway system, is something government must establish and maintain and so on and on. Now, for George Will, the state has replaced religion as the motivating force in life and also as the overall environment of man. It has replaced God. So he is thoroughly in the tradition of the Greeks and of Hegel, who said the state is God walking on earth. If the state is the environment of man, as he says, if the state is the creator of all institutions, of all freedom, then indeed we have bypassed Christianity totally and moved into a radically pagan world. To give you examples of this kind of pagan thinking in will, I quote, If we are to be properly conscious of our politics, if our politics is to be properly conscious of itself, we must be wide awake to this fact. Choosing an economic system or choosing substantially to revive significant economic policies is a political, which means moral undertaking, unquote. Notice the equation of the political and the moral. Now, this is Aristotle. Aristotle said that morality was something that came out of politics, a product of the state. This was Plato also. But we believe that God is the source of moral law that if you do not derive your morality from God, the state will become God, or the individual man will become God. There is nothing in this article that would indicate that uh, George Will ever did anything but uh, walk through a church. It apparently never registered on him. In fact, he goes on to substantiate his... uh, Point with regard to the welfare state in these words, and I quote A welfare state is certainly important to and probably indispensable to social cohesion and hence to national strength. A welfare state is implied by conservative rhetoric. A welfare state can be an embodiment of a wholesome ethic of common provision. Again, you see the moral equation a wholesome ethic of common provision. The doctrine underlying the political economy of the American welfare state was enunciated in 1877 by Chief Justice Waite in Munn v. Illinois. The court upheld an Illinois statute regulating rates in grain elevators, holding that private property, quote, becomes clothed with a public interest when used in a manner to make it of public consequence and affect the community at large. When, therefore, one devotes his property to a use in which the public has an interest, he, in effect, grants to the public an interest in that use and must submit to be controlled by the public for the common good to the extent of the interest he has thus created." Unquote. Now, as one scholar has pointed out recently, this decision, Mon versus Illinois, destroyed private property. Because there is no private property that cannot be said to, in some uh, extent, have a consequence affecting the community at large, have a use in which the public has an interest. So everything then becomes a matter of public interest, which the courts have so interpreted means a state interest. So not only does Will deny that religion is the source of morality, not only does he replace God with a state, but he has, in effect, assented to a tradition which has destroyed the significance of private property in this country. Moreover, he goes on to say subsequently that Uh, and I quote, the most important reason conservatives should give for their vision of the welfare state is the most important reason for doing anything politically. It is justice. And he goes on to define justice as something that is created and established by the social order, by the state. Well, justice means an ultimate right or wrong. It means righteousness. The two words are equivalent. And the only valid standard of justice or of righteousness can be God, none other. So that if you make the state the arbiter of justice, and if you justify its existence in terms of itself, you've taken away the possibility of allowing for any freedom, and of course, For Will, freedom is a product of the state. What uh, George Will's article clearly reveals is that conservatism, if it is separated from Christianity, will become destructive.
1: I think essentially... um, uh, uh, this is just a, a logical consequences of, of something we've been talking about for, for a long, long time at Calcedon, in that as soon as you remove the foundation, it doesn't take very long for those who style themselves as conservatives to in fact become, become anti-conservative and liberal. I would also um, point out that uh, George Will is considered by ABC uh, in his appearances with David Brinkley and, and a number of others as their token conservative. Yes. Because he and he appears on a good many of the um, uh, the standard uh, talk interview um, where you have three or four newsmen interviewing mm-hmm. somebody. He, he appears as the regular token conservative on on um, uh, ABC television, and they have used his perspective a great deal against the conservatives because the liberals know where where Will is really coming from.
0: Yes, only the liberals will call him a conservative. That's right. Yes. <laughs> now, here's another item. Uh, the Reverend Robert H. Schuler, and uh, I think most of you are familiar with him, is pastor of the Crystal Cathedral in Southern California. The church has been stripped of its tax-exempt status, and this was because they had what has been called commercial activity. They've had uh, concerts by Lawrence Welk, Victor Borga, Fred Waring, and others, and uh, a 12-concert season of Spectaculars, which brought Tony Bennett, Mitch Miller, and the Fifth Dimension to the church. Now, you and I may disagree about uh, the value of their concert series, But the whole point of the uh, the state's argument against the church was that these were profit-making activities. Well, let's examine that a bit. The idea that a church cannot in any respect make money is ridiculous. The idea that the state has a right to tax profits... Is a very recent idea, very, very recent, not much older than a lot of people still living. And that has been a usurpation by the state. The medieval church had concerts, it had drama, it had all kinds of activities, it ministered to every social and cultural need. That has been the historic life of the church. The church very often loses money on much of what it does. But today the attitude of state and federal agencies is that if they make a little bit of money on anything, they must immediately be clobbered. Well, the whole premise is invalid. It means that we are losing our freedoms to the state, which today says we will tax profit-making activities and which is also proposing that non-profit activities be regulated and is regulating them increasingly so that what is left that is free from state controls? And what is wrong with the church making some money? Now, I may not agree, and I do not agree with uh, Schuller's theology or with his concert program, but I believe he should have the right to have those things that he feels he wants to put on. It is a church. It has a ministry. It is meeting an important need in that community, and it's doing a number of things that I think are excellent. It's helping a great many people in need. I think if you were to balance the kind of expenditure the church makes where it is... In effect, giving away money for Christian community purposes against what it has taken in on its ticket sales for its concerts, the Crystal Cathedral has lost money. But, of course, the state does not figure that way. I think it's very wrong. It needs to be challenged. Now to go on to something else, a very interesting book, Megatrends, M-E-G-A-T-R-E-N-D-S, Ten New Directions Transforming Our Lives by John Naisbitt, N-A-I-S-B-I-T-T. Came out just recently, 1550 a copy, published by Warner Books, 1982. You can buy this by ordering it from Heritage Bookshop, 2427-B, Marconi Avenue, Sacramento, California, 95821. Now, Mega Trends is written by a man who is not a conservative. He is simply trying to document the trends that are now in appearance that will determine the future. Let me say his book is far superior to the kind of thing that Alvin Toffler wrote. I thought Toffler's Future Shock and Third Way were nonsense. But there's a great deal of uh, important data in megatrends. One of the uh, things that uh, mark it as a superior book is that It is written with discernment, with wisdom. For example, one of the observations he makes at the very beginning is especially astute. He says, and I quote, Trends are bottom-up, fads top-down. That's very important for us to know. Because today, the world is very much dominated by fads, and it tends to look at the future and the present in terms of fads. And fads are from the top down. But the trends which govern the future are from the bottom up. And those trends are very important for us to know. Now... Apart from acknowledging that there is a trend in the area of religion, which he goes over very lightly, uh, Nasbit does not do justice to the religious trends of our time, which I believe are exceedingly important. I think we are a part of those trends here at Seaton. Every day I recognize how much we are when somebody calls me and tells me that in some Periodical or other, uh, someone is taking another swipe at us as some kind of growing uh, menace in society. (laughs) Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Now, uh, one of the points Naismith makes is, and I quote, the new source of power is not money in the hands of the few, but information in the hands of many, unquote. So that we have a tremendous growth today in information, in trends, in the growth of small business, in new sources of uh, vitality, energy, and power. We're seeing the destruction of uh, old forms, the old education, among other things. Nesbitt comments, we are drowning in information but starved for knowledge, unquote. An excellent statement. He deals also with what's happening in medicine, with uh, the entrepreneurial explosion. He calls attention to a fact that Drucker has commented about, that nobody really believes anymore that government delivers. Moreover, he calls attention, too, to the kind of thing that's developing, something I called attention to a while back. And he cites the fact of gleaners in northern California harvesting the um, crops and the apples and so on, and points out that there are gleaners in Arizona, Michigan, Oregon, and Washington states as well this kind of thing that's taking place all over the country, so that he says we are developing a different kind of country, one that is very much different from what we today are familiar with. It's an important book, well worth reading, and I urge you to get it. You won't agree with everything, and I think it's all the more important because bit, but does not come from our perspective. He begins with a radically different position. He also deals with the uh, world of banking. He deals specifically with another, a number of fields, and he asks, what business are banks in? <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> He says, unless banks reconceptualize what business they are in, they will be out of business. So, his book is uh, very important. He also attacks the idea of strategic planning, and he says it is worthless unless there is, first of all, a strategic vision. <laughs> the book has a lot of good, hard common sense. And, uh, I, I think you'll enjoy it. It's uh, easy reading, can be read in a very short time. Have any comments about it, John? Are you familiar with this book? Uh, no, I haven't had a chance to read it yet. I,
1: I, the thought did occur to me, though, a while ago uh, um, uh, when we were talking about uh, the problems with Reverend Shuler and, and, uh, and the Chris Cathedral, and then I'll come back to this, Um uh one of the things that uh, Jim Griffith who's an attorney at law one of the things that he's going to be dealing with at the conference on the meeting of the arts in October is this very problem and he's going to attempt to send forth the biblical law uh with respect to how do we um, uh, found our efforts in these areas. One of the major problems in Christian art today, for example, is the fact that most Christians seem to feel that somehow their work is sanctified if they set up a non-profit corporation. Mm -hmm. And in reality, what they do is acquire a non-profit mentality, which means that they're guaranteed not to make any money. (laughs) But uh, I just wanted to mention that in passing. Now, Megatrends, my one, the one perspective from the brief excerpts that I have seen from Megatrends and heard from it, uh, I think, The reason why um, uh, uh, Nasebitt does not deal with the major religious trend um, uh, is his starting point. This is an an illustration of of how a man's starting point blinds him to real factors. In reality, all of the major trends that he talks about in that book have a religious foundation. But he can't see that, given his starting point of presupposition. Very good. His book is in effect a, a criticism of effects or results and not a book that has to deal with causes yes with ultimate causes and it's uh, it's interesting that it comes out of out of what really is in, is a member of the opposing camp yes and and one should make that kind of statement the kinds of statements that he makes in that book it's uh... uh it's very very interesting you mentioned the trends in education i think we're all aware now of the major blow-up that's occurred uh, in the last uh, uh, few weeks, in the in the major media, the media is suddenly horrified that that the public school system is turning out incompetence by the millions. And uh, I've been watching this debate recently, and it's following a trend uh, in all such debates the, that the liberal first raises these kinds of issues in the media and then beats his breast for several weeks, and then it's very quickly forgotten, yes, and brushed aside. And in the meanwhile, though, everyone has been firmly convinced of the fact that the system that exists is is a failure and something's going to have to replace it. Uh, uh. But I think Megatrends is, is an important book. I think everybody ought to read it. Yes. Um, uh, uh, particularly when you realize the fact that he, is, he comes to these conclusions without any real solid uh, foundation. He doesn't yes. really know what he knows. All he can do is try to report the facts and explain them. And I think it's important from that
0: perspective. Very important. Well, you know, one reason why the prosecution of Christian schools is underway is because it's the only way they can uh, hope to deal with the competition. The public schools cannot match them. So they are going to try to eliminate them. Well, I think it's evident. I think it's evident. Uh, who the leaders
1: of the United States are going to be in 20 years? They're going to be those out of the Christian schools. Yes. And the reason why are really very very basic. Number one, they're they're uh, by the time they're in the in the seventh and eighth grades, uh, depending on what, it varies of course from school to school. But by the time they're in the seventh and eighth grades, they're already thinking at the intellectual level of a high school graduate in most public school systems. And uh, by the time they finish high school, they have the equivalent of a junior college education. And 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 with that kind of a foundation going into a university mm-hmm. uh uh if the as long as the faith stays strong, they can really interpret the data very, very effectively, become much better interpreters of facts and data. And I think just the natural uh outworking of ideas having consequences uh is going to produce um, a bifurcation or a split rather. In uh, between the, uh, the humanist-educated uh, and Christian-educated uh, men of the future, that there's going to be two very distinctly uh, different camps of thought, and that you're going to find all of a sudden that the majority of the leadership positions are held by Christians yes. simply because of their fundamental competence. And that's going to create some very interesting problems in the future. Yes. Well, <laughs> John,
0: you were uh, the other night at our... Calcedon Christian School open house. This is the first time <laughs> yes, you were there. Indeed. Yes, indeed. <laughs> you want to comment on what the school is like? <laughs> well, I mean, it's it. I can I won't
1: uh, go into it in too much detail. But one person who was a guest there, whose children were not in the in Calcedon School, but whose children will be in Calcedon School come September, uh, a gentleman walked up to me and we were standing there talking and and. Uh, he said, you know, and he said it almost under his breath like he was afraid some of his friends there might hear him who, who had their kids in other schools. But he was making reference to another uh, private school. Mm-hmm. And he said the difference between that school and Calcedon is the difference between the USFL and the NFL. Mm-hmm. And I thought, very interesting observation. I think I was incredibly, I was I was impressed uh, uh, to an extent that I have not recently been impressed by an educational effort, um, and I I say that with a great deal of thought because uh, I've been very concerned with my own children's intellectual development, and uh, uh, when I saw the results begin to happen, when I could see my daughter, for example, compose a work of poetry, you know, in the sixth grade that that rivals. Uh, 75 to 80 percent of the stuff that appears in published magazines, I, 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 it just struck me how incredibly incompetent the humanist perspective is and how confident uh, even the simplest Christian foundation can be and the
0: kinds of consequences mm-hmm. it can produce in children in, in thinking. Well, John, you should have heard what the parents with children in public school said about the contrast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: well... You know, uh, (laughs) when the fourth graders were going over uh, their math work, doing the computations (laughs) mentally, (laughs) uh, multiply 200 by... uh, 223 by 6 and divide it by 4 and then uh, subtract so much and add so much Mm -hmm. and multiply so much. And what is the result? all of that in their head i looked at you and otto and uh, i knew that all three of us had flunked before we got halfway <laughs> well one of through the
1: problem <laughs> one woman standing there with a, with a baby in one arm and a little and a little 3 year old on her on her uh, hanging onto her skirt she was every time they and they did must have done 12 15 18 of these continuous strings of of calculations in their heads and this was in, in the third grade room, not the fourth mm-hmm. grade. This is in the third grade room when I saw it. And um, uh, she was standing there, and I could just see her lips going, as she was trying <laughs> to follow along with the, with the calculations, you know. And then when it was all over, why she said she gave an answer which was not the correct answer, and she did that about five or six times in a row, you know, and she says, finally she just says to herself as the class came to an end, I just flunked the third grade. <laughs> I, and she really, and she meant it. It wasn't something she was just saying as a joke. She said, I just flunked the third grade, and I'm a 24-year-old woman. You know. <laughs> well,
0: I was delighted at the ease with which the fourth graders uh not only prayed the Agnus Dei in Latin, but conjugated and declined, and mm-hmm. translated from Latin to English, from English mm-hmm. to Latin, and so on.
1: There's the foundation for future scholarship, right yes. there, because one does not one does not go back beyond the 18th century with any degree of, of, of uh, expertise in interpreting documents and in history and government and mm-hmm. everything else if, if you don't read Latin. And and we've got, I mean, let's face it, the first 1,700 years of our uh, Christian history um, since um, the Lord's Advent has been done in Latin Mm -hmm. and Greek. Yes. And uh, without that, you simply don't understand the foundation of modern languages. You don't understand the foundation of the Western world in terms of being able to read the documents. uh, You have to rely on someone else's interpretation of the document always, and that really gets you in trouble.
0: You know, we had a very wonderful, a very remarkable person there as a guest that evening. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm sorry you didn't get a chance to meet her. Some other time you'll have to. Uh, Sister Mary Audrey. Yes. She is 79 years old. She has taught in parochial schools for 59 years Mm -hmm. in four continents, Asia, South America, north america and europe and she's not retired yet although she has retired from the uh, teaching and uh, of her vocation you'll see her walking around uh, angel's camp almost any day of the year she has had two serious heart heart attacks since the first of january But she is out calling every day on the sick and the shut-ins in the community. She's a very radiant woman full of grace. Remarkable lady. Yes, she is. Well, uh, now I want to go on very briefly to another book, which I do not recommend at all. It's a book by W.P., W.D., P, as in Paul, A-D-E-N, Tennyson in Egypt, a study of the imagery in his earlier work. Now, I cite this as a horrible example of what so much of modern scholarship and modern thought is about, because what uh, this book does is to go to a book written by Charles and Alfred Tennyson, the brothers, when they were 18 and 17 years of age, respectively, which was published in 1827. Now, those poems were of indifferent quality. They're not worthy of uh, attention or reprinting, except as a curiosity of something, as something produced by a great poet in his youth. However, Payton's interest in it is uh, more than literary, even though he is a literary scholar. His interest is uh, psychoanalytic. He says that literary scholarship must look at anything that is written in terms of certain concepts. The first is the concept of repression, the second substitution so that repressed emotions find a substitute expression, and the third ambiguity. Now, in terms of this, he can take the simple meaning of rather indifferent poetry, fairly well written, but nothing remarkable, and have it mean all kinds of things about the hidden life of the Tennyson brothers in their youth. Well, of course, the premise here is that of modern psychoanalysis, psychology, and psychiatry. From Freud on especially, people have gone to the unconscious mind, previously called the subconscious, which I feel is still the better term, and read the mind of man in terms of the unconscious. Well, uh, this kind of interpretation is clearly invalid, but it governs our society. It rests on Freud's book on the interpretation of dreams. Dreams somehow were a code that would tell us what the man really thought so that we were to be understood through our unconscious expressions. Is this true? Modern art is governed by this premise. A great deal of criminology is governed by it through psychiatric court testimony. Art Literary and non-literary is very strongly under the influence of this kind of thing. A great deal of pastoral counseling, unfortunately, is governed by this. It has had a powerful impact on education, and so on and on. And yet the uh, surprising fact is that it is invalid. It's been demonstrated to be, but it fits in so closely and thoroughly with the theory of evolution that it is accepted. Very early, however, psychoanalysts found that when they were studying the dreams of their patients, that their patients' dreams were fitting their theories perfectly, and they found very quickly the patients were dreaming in terms of what the psychoanalyst expected. In other words, the mind of the patient was creating the dreams that the mind of the psychiatrist felt would fit his theory. As a result, the more responsible psychoanalyst dropped dream analysis. And so they're trying to get to the subconscious through other types of analysis. But in all of these, the mind of the analyzed is governed by the mind of the analyst and controls whatever that subconscious expression is. And the result is that instead of the unconscious or a subconscious governing the conscious mind, what the history of psychoanalysis has demonstrated is that the conscious mind controls and creates what comes out of the unconscious
1: i just want a quick comment about um, uh payton's uh, interpreting all of the various kinds of meaning in some of the simplest phrases um, in the uh, art world we call that the puff puff the magic dragon syndrome uh-huh. uh, <laughs> uh-huh. because uh, you might remember for years there was the, there was the, the uproar over the supposed hidden meanings
0: mm-hmm. in the
1: song Puff the Magic Dragon that, that uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary did uh, so successfully. And, in, and it didn't make any difference that, that all three of them, uh, uh, time and again, refuted all those charges, that they had no such hidden meanings, um, that it was uh, the construct of, of uh, the social critics and the psychologists mm-hmm. and not in the song itself. And so a whole concept developed of reading hidden meanings where there are none, and and a lot of us call that the puff of magic dragon syndrome. Yes. And that's what Payton suffers from.
0: Well, a lot of the rock uh, uh, lyrics have been composed deliberately to put in uh, a supposedly uh, unconscious meaning. Yes. So... (laughs) They are now manufacturing the uh, underground meaning deliberately. Oh,
1: it shows you just
0: how confident psychiatry is. Yes. (laughs) So, even though they have the evidence staring them in the face again and again that the conscious mind controls it, they insist on seeing the unconscious as determinative. I'm going to go into the reason for that tomorrow morning, by the way, Sunday morning, as I deal with a prophetic man. Uh, because there are some important implications that I I don't want to take time to develop here. But we have a, a peculiar situation today in the world in that man is turning everything on its head. And the result is, we don't know our own selves, we don't know our world, because we're following the kind of interpretation of things that Peyton does. We see a hidden meaning in everything. When the Obvious meaning escapes us. And so we are stumbling around like blind men, and we are creating the sickest literature, perhaps, in all of history, and the sickest art, because we've foisted a Darwinistic perspective and everything has to come up out of the unconscious and out of the primordial. The doctrine of evolution has in many, many respects had a very sinister influence on the history of man.
1: I think, I think the, the, that the whole theory of evolution, the survival of the fittest, uh, and this comes back to um, megatrends as well as George Will, and, and uh, I think that one of the major outcomes of the whole theory of evolution as it was taught and accepted in the 1860s and 70s and 80s was the fact that that uh, uh, the wealthy and the businessman doesn't have to do anything for anyone else, and and uh, out of that it laid, I think, the foundation for the sweatshops, so-called sweatshops, and um, uh, many of which were uh, uh, not sweatshops, but but the examples which were were exploited well beyond mm-hmm. there by the social do-gooders. And I think that created that, that, that the theory of evolution is perhaps responsible for more evil and death and suffering and depravity in, in the Western world than any other single concept yes. that I could name. I, we could go into a lot of, of things about uh, but I think the one concept which, which uh, is the logical expression of humanism at work and man being God is the whole theory of evolution concept. And one of the things I take issue with very strongly is Carl Sagan's uh, Cosmos. I thought it was very interesting. They've been rerunning Carl Sagan's view of the cosmos on all the PBS stations and everywhere else now for the last two years. And here's this, here's this man who's uh, an object of ridicule in the scientific community who is, who is incapable of sustaining a rational argument who sits there in this throne room, who sits in this throne room of of uh, uh, a set construction, and sits in wonder before the universe, and at the same time takes his, his, his shots at at Christian religion. yes and and it is evident that the theory of evolution is being propagated as a fundamental constituent of a religious worldview, yes, in art and in psychology, and everywhere else. That's why I think that it's probably the single most devastating one concept that that modern man has to deal with.
0: I agree emphatically. Well, our time is up. It's been good to be with you again, and uh, I'll be back in a couple of weeks, in between which time we'll have our conference in Seattle. I'll be in Australia, in Nebraska, and in Florida. Until then, God bless you.